that we may sanctify in our hearts Christ as Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So isn't it a wonderful thing that Easter is not a one-and-done project? Like, every Sunday, followers of Christ celebrate His resurrection. But in our tradition, we have seven glorious, luxurious weeks to ponder from different angles of vision the significance of Christ being raised from the dead for us. And today, we have three amazing scriptures from the New Testament, each of them coming at His resurrection from a powerful point of view, each offering a wonderful opportunity for a good 45-minute Presbyterian sermon. <laughs> but we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto, so. <laughs> Acts 17. Paul's correcting Athenians' religious sensibility reminds me of the language of Eucharistic Prayer B, where the pr we pray, you have brought us out of error into truth. 1 Peter 3, in which Peter ponders Christ, the righteous one, being given once and for all for the unrighteous reminds me of the next phrase, brought us out of sin into righteousness. And John 14, where Jesus says, because I live, you also will live, reminds me of the last phrase in that, in that glorious prayer, you have brought us out of death into life. What I'm going to linger over longer this morning is the first of those, out of error into truth, with Paul's sermon to the Athenians as my point of departure, and especially at the end <clears throat> of this passage, of the fact that God has appointed Jesus to be judge of the whole world. He has given us assurance. He has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Consider what Paul's doing in this passage. Paul recognizes the, the keen religiosity of the Athenians. So many gods to cover so many needs, some personal, some civic, that they even had to have a catch-all god to take care of needs they couldn't even think of. Now, to those who would be unfamiliar with the Bible storyline here, Paul doesn't talk about the Garden of Eden and its account of our all having a common source and all having a common problem, the fall into sin. Nor does he talk about the Tower of Babel, the Bible's version of why we're scattered with so many languages and so many approaches to truth and life. But instead, he summarizes the point of those stories for this, this pagan group of people that just don't know those stories. He summarizes the point of those stories by saying that up to now, God has spread the human race around in such a way that 
all peoples grope around trying to find him and figure him out. And Paul acknowledges that these Greeks have inklings of the truth that somehow they know they are God's children and that therefore God isn't adequately imagined in terms of rocks or precious metals. But the apostle declares boldly, by raising his own son from the dead, the true God of the universe has established a single point of accountability for the whole human race, calling for everybody everywhere to repent and turn to him in faith, implicitly making it the duty of all who have repented and believed to call upon others to do so as well. Translate to our world. Even now, even when it is clearly disguised, I'm sorry, when it is cleverly disguised, and every attempt is made to hide it, we too live in a world that is deeply, keenly religious. Even when, maybe especially when, the rhetoric is anti-religion and pro-spirituality or something, or when any cause is embraced with what cannot be called anything other than a religious fervor. The enlightened West. The enlightened West, most of the people around us, has put the powerful tool of reason into the service of the almighty individual. Each of us, almost literally our own divinity, the religion of Reggie. We, we're exploring in our society the outer limits of how much control each of us can take over our personal identity. Now, that may get worked out in a Fox News fashion or a CNN News fashion. You know what I'm talking about. But it's still the religion of me. And I think that many of us, many of us feel that the competition of egos and rights and entitlements and privilege is just about to swamp us. Meanwhile, on our flank has emerged an alternative vision, a newly reemergent, explicitly religious voice on behalf of an Allah who demands absolute conformity to a high and severe standard of morality submission to laws of intertwined worship and governance that promise harmony and order and holiness. But they seem to be laws that feel from jetliners flown into skyscrapers and bombs strapped to suicide murderers like this God is anything but the all compassionate and merciful God that Allah is claimed to be. 
So here we are. On the one hand, trying to think Paul's thoughts after him, never has it been more relevant for followers of Christ to maintain that the freedom and joy of individual human expression that our fellow citizens of the West pursue is to be found ultimately only in this one who came to show us what true humanity looks like. In Him, Jesus. In Him, Jesus, is to be found satisfaction, healing, inner and outer, hope for a cleansed conscience. In Him is to be found the love that so many of us have sought in all the wrong places. On the other hand, and at the very same time, never has it been more relevant for followers of Christ to maintain that Jesus' resurrection from the dead marks him as God's true, eternal, and yes, divine son. The Lion of Judah, who was slain as God's lamb to take away the sin of the world. He and no other is the one who bears the world's judgment and brings the world's judgment. The whole world. And he is the one to whom. He is the one who has taken accountability for the whole human race. And he is the one to whom each and every human being will finally answer. And you know what? He has begun to rule, and he will rule. But his order, his rule, is established and will be established, not by bombs, not by intimidation, not by terror, and not by a morality forced from without. Instead, his order will be furthered and established as we go as an army of love to do three things. And here I go back to our other passages. First Peter. First, we go to tell the truth about what God has done for us. That's what Peter wants us to know. In brief, God has brought us out of sin into righteousness. In that, Christ suffered for sin once and for all, as Peter says, to bring you and me to God. He has plundered hell itself and freed imprisoned spirits. And in our baptism, sealed by his resurrection, he has enabled our own pledge, and I'm going to rephrase it a little bit differently than, I'm going to phrase it a little bit differently than in RSV, enabled our own pledge to God from a cleansed conscience. So first, 
We go as an army of love to tell the truth about what God has done for us. Secondly, we go as an army of love to tell the truth about what God has done in us. And here I look over at John. As Jesus says in John's gospel, reminding me of the phrase from the prayer, out of death into life. Jesus says in John's gospel, because I live, you also will live. Meaning, by virtue of his resurrection, his ascension to the Father, and his presence now inside us by the Holy Spirit, he says, quoting again from John, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Living rightly is not imposed from without. It arises from within, from the Christ who indwells because he has risen and come back initially by the Holy Spirit, his own presence within us, inside us, in our very skin. So, we go as an army of love to tell the truth about what God has done for us. We go as an army of truth to tell, we go as an army of love to tell the truth about what God has done in us. And third, we go as an army of love to offer our lives. We go living the accompanying desiderata, the desired things that course through our passages. And I, I simply invite you to take the insert and go home and read the passages that talk about the life that should be flowing from us. If you love me, keep my commandments. Now, the technical explanation of that is, if you love me, keep my commandments. The Christian life is a lot like blues or jazz. Blues has a defined chord structure, and there's lots of freedom once you know the chord structure. Jazz is the same way. It's got its own chord structure, and you're free as long as you're moving around within the chord structure that, that jazz calls for. Christian life is the same thing. There's plenty of freedom within the confines, within the freedom that the commandments provide. And then notice especially the way Peter spells this out. In your hearts, sanctify, which really means set aside, Christ as Lord. You're not the king and queen of your world. He is. And once you accept that, then you get this wonderful status of being crown prince or crown princess, and that ain't half bad. And then there's what Peter says about being ready to give a reason for the hope that is within you. Uh, brothers and sisters, here's God's plan for church growth. You know what our marketing is? It's you. studies show, and my own anecdotal history shows, churches that grow, grow because 
Well, I mean, architecture helps, beautiful music helps, rich liturgy helps, great preaching helps. <laughs> if only we could find some. No. But what, what brings people is when they see your life and mine and they say, I've got to get me some of that. I don't understand how you respond to such painful things with such hope. Tell me, why is it that you don't just give up? What enables you to hang on? And sometimes all we got is one name, Jesus. And the people who walk alongside me and hold me in his arms. Be ready to offer a reason for the hope that we have that others don't. And then finally, among these great desiderata, make sure that when you suffer, and I can guarantee you one thing in this life, bad stuff's going to happen. Some of it's not your fault. It just is part of being the far part of the fall. And some of it's going to be stuff you bring down on your own head. Sorry, but we all, you know, we all do stupid stuff. We all do selfish stuff. But what Peter says is to strive for this. Like when bad stuff happens that's just not a part of the fall, but when mistreatment comes, we're not being mistreated because we've done stupid stuff. We're being mistreated because people know that we love Jesus too much to do what everybody else is doing. Just because we love him, they're just places that we're not going to go, stuff that we're not going to do. And it's going to put us on the outside looking in, and somebody's going to say, why do you respond to such mistreatment with hope? The result, Peter says at the end of his letter is, and after you have suffered for a little while, the God of grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, support, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen.